Welcome to the Judgment Enforcement Hour with Joe Dickerson. In our program, we reveal the unrealistic expectations of many creditors and the schemes of debtors and fraudsters that are nearly as old as man's time on earth. Now, here is your host, Joe Dickerson, with the new processes to outsmart the bad guys. Good evening, Mr. Miss America. Welcome to the Judgment Enforcement Hour. We're honored again this week to have with us Al Hawkeiser, who's been a frequent guest on our show. Uh, Al, welcome. Uh, glad to have you back on the program. This evening, we're going to be chatting about some of the judgment enforcement strategies that have worked well for us over the last 30 years. So, Al, I'll let you lead off, and then we'll get into some of our experiences together. Well, thank you, Joe, and I appreciate you having the opportunity to be on your show several times. And I think the information that we have been putting out to our listeners hopefully has been helpful for them and have given them some ideas of where they can look to find success in collecting on their judgments. But one of the places that I'd like to start today uh, when talking about collecting a judgment is what happens when the judgment debtor goes bankrupt. It doesn't end the collection activity. A lot of times, and I know, Joe, you and I have talked about this, is bankruptcy could actually be a friend for creditors. Putting the creditor in a new forum to collect their judgment and also forcing the debtor's hand a little bit. This way they're not sitting there and, and continuing with their stories. They're under the jurisdiction of the bankruptcy court. And the information that you can obtain in bankruptcy cases sometimes is greater than what you can obtain through a debtor's exam. And I want to really start off with a little bit of a, a story here because I, I think this will bring to light um, one of the things that you can do when you have a debtor who owes you a lot of money on a judgment and then they file bankruptcy. So I had a case, and this was a Chapter 13, which was filed by an individual who actually owned sleep clinics all over the country. And you thought sleep clinics were doing pretty well, but he didn't have a really good grasp on his finances. So he ended up filing a Chapter 13. Our client had a $186,000 judgment, not as large as some of the judgments that some of our listeners are dealing with, but still a decent amount. And when you go back about 15 years ago when I handled this case, that was a substantial amount of money for our client. And so I took a look at his bankruptcy petition. And one of the things everybody should be aware of that a bankruptcy petition provides a ton of information because when a debtor files a bankruptcy, they are signing under oath that the information included in their bankruptcy petition is true. And if it's not, they are subjecting themselves to being brought up on perjury charges. And because bankruptcy is federal, you're looking at federal crimes, and federal crimes provides for perjury, uh, five years in jail, and a $500,000 fine. So there are some pretty serious ramifications. So when a debtor files the bankruptcy, they have to fill out a schedule I and J, and that deals with their income and their expenses. And our debtor in this case indicated that his income was close to a quarter million dollars a year. But he also listed expenses that were about $249,000 um, over a year if you parsed it out. Well, when you file the petition on your expenses, you list them monthly. And there were two expenses that were listed that I looked at that really just did not look right. And one of those was the debtor's food budget. And there were the debtor, his wife, and they had a son. And they listed, 15 years ago no less, $1,600 a month for food. 
And that's a pretty hefty food budget. The other thing that I looked at and I saw was they had under miscellaneous expenses $250 in cleaning supplies. And that just set off a red flag in my head. (laughs) So here you are. They evidently like to eat a lot or go out to eat. And they also are cleaning their house or... What I first thought of, maybe one of them, and since the husband had the sleep clinics, maybe the wife was earning some extra income, and she was using those cleaning supplies because she cleaned offices, she cleans houses, whatever it was. So these are things because the debtors list every one of their expenses or are required to. You get a feel for and things that just don't look right. So what I did at that point in time was I conducted what's called a 2004A examination, and that's basically a deposition of the debtor in the bankruptcy, or you could see it as a debtor's exam in post-judgment activity. And I brought in the husband and the wife separately. Now, even though they could be together in the same room because they were both parties to the bankruptcy... um, I question him at different points in times, and I question the husband first, and I hit him on the food amount. And he said, his words back to me, well, you evidently don't have a 15-year-old son. And I said, no, I don't, but that's awful. That's an awful lot of food. And the Chapter 13 trustee was also in our um, 2004A exam. I did not ask him the question about the cleaning materials, because I just had this feeling, and I don't want to seem biased or prejudicial, that maybe there was this extra income, and since I know he was running his sleep clinics, he wasn't the one who was potentially using them. So when I did the 2004A examination of the wife, I asked her about, why do you have this $250 for cleaning expenses? And just clear as day, she came out, and said, we have to use special solvents on the antique furniture that we have in the house. Well, that was great, because guess what they didn't list in their bankruptcy petition? Absolutely. The antique furniture. So, it was nice of, nice of her to take care of those antiques for you. Oh, it, it was great. So what ended up happening was we concluded the exam. I filed... Uh, my motion to dismiss the bankruptcy and an objection to confirmation. The Chapter 13 trustee who was sitting there filed his objection to confirmation and motion to dismiss the case. So then the debtor all of a sudden modifies their Chapter 13 plan. And what they did, they had originally about an 18% plan. The plan then became a 94% plan because the trustee was sending out an appraiser to appraise the furniture, and they did not want that to happen. So our client was happy with 94%, and the debtor confirmed its plan at 94%, and guess what happened? Never made a payment. So the Chapter 13 got dismissed, and then what did our client do? They went and levied on the antique furniture after the dismissal of the case, And they ended up selling that antique furniture for about $80,000. So it was a win-win in a situation where a bankruptcy could have looked ugly unless you took the extra steps to really do that deep dive. And so that was one of the stories that I wanted to provide to our audience tonight to make sure that don't be scared when it goes bankrupt. It actually could be a good thing. Yeah, oftentimes, Al, we've had uh, debtors when we were negotiating for settlement, and uh, they got tired of us pushing pretty hard for them. So they said, well, Mr. Dickerson, if you don't just get reasonable on this settlement, uh, we're going to have to be taking bankruptcy. And I'd look them right straight in the face and say, 
Well, I'm glad to hear that because my client and I have been talking seriously about putting you into an involuntary bankruptcy so we get federal jurisdiction over you, and then we'll let the courts deal with it. So I think that's a pretty good idea. In fact, why don't you get your hat and coat, and I will drive you over to the uh, bankruptcy clerk's office. My client has agreed to uh, go ahead and let me pay your bankruptcy filing fees so we can get this started. So let's just go do that now. And all of a sudden, they're not so interested in uh, taking a bankruptcy immediately. And uh, sometimes that will uh, lead you to some pretty good uh, settlement negotiations. And, and, and that's a great point. I love the way that you point out. Um, yeah, we'll even pay your filing fee. Um, of you know, one of the one of the things with involuntaries, um, debtors who are operating businesses or do have money and have just been playing the game and don't want to pay anybody, they don't want to be in a bankruptcy. And even if they go into a Chapter 11 or if an involuntary is filed initially and then they're forced to convert it into a voluntary Chapter 11, um, they don't want to be there because they're they're losing control of running their business. Um, And Again, you may not be the only creditor there. And we see a lot of this today with Chapter 11 cases with MCA uh, funders that are out there. So you have businesses who owe a lot of money. And what they have been doing over the last you know, several months prior to the filing of a bankruptcy is going out there and going to every merchant cash advance funder that they can find who is willing to give them a sale of their receivables um, and let them pay that amount back over time. But the MCA funders are getting a daily amount of money off of these receivables. Um, what happens is when you get into these bankruptcies, you have so many creditors that even though they're controlling the Chapter 11, they're really not doing it. You have the court looking at them, you have the United States trustee looking at them, and you have all these creditors who have lent the debtor a lot of money looking at them. So, again, you know, you talk about forcing someone into involuntary. Very, very good pressure tactic. Um uh, because the debtors really don't want to be there. And that gets them to um, come to the table and hopefully talk a decent settlement and, you know, pay back the amounts that are owed. Yeah, I've uh, found that the debtors really don't like to have to deal with the federal bankruptcy court judges either. We had a uh, target who took a bankruptcy uh, when we were trying to collect our judgment from him, and uh, I had uh, made a note of his license plate number on his new car and uh, just kept it in the file in case I needed it at a later time, and uh, I had done some background investigation on him and found that he had a pilot's license. And uh, he lived in the mountains not too far from a uh, private airport that was between two uh, ski operations up in the mountains. So I took a cruise one day up and drove by the airport and uh, asked the operator of this small airport if uh, Mr. C uh, had his plane there. And he said, oh, yeah, that's it, sitting right over there, the twin engine. And so I got the end number off of it. That's the uh, call numbers for the plane. Checked with the Federal Aeronautics Administration in Oklahoma City to find out who that plane was registered to. And it was registered to a uh, Isle of Man Corporation uh, with my debtor's home address as being the address for the corporation. So we rocked along and... Uh, I did a little checking on uh, his car, and I had, had talked to him about his car and uh, asked him, you know, uh, when he bought it and so forth, and it had the name of the dealership on the back of the car next to the license plate, uh, and uh, so I knew where the car was bought, so I talked to the uh, 
dealer uh, and uh, actually took a subpoena to him because I was anticipating that we might not get too much information voluntarily. And with the subpoena, I was able to get him to pull the deal package and uh, the down payment for that car, which was, again, in the Isle of Man company's name, but at his home address, and the down payment for that car was the trade-in for his personal vehicle. And uh, there was a few thousand dollars balance, which was uh, financed. So uh, we checked on the plane, and uh, we had uh, verified that it did, in fact, belong to this Isle of Man company. So we got the uh, debtor in deposition, and... Um, no, we, we were in court, and the uh, we were able to get out of him that uh, the uh, car was, in fact, uh, a company car because his clients lived in the Isle of Man, and when they flew to the United States, they would call him, and he would pick them up with their car and would drive them from uh, the Denver International Airport up to the ski uh, areas and uh, pick up the private plane, and then he would fly them around the United States in their plane, and he was just on retainer, so if anytime they needed him, he was at their beck and call. Well, I had done a little homework on the the uh, on the uh, corporation that was domiciled at his or had his home address on it, and had got with the. Uh, the corporation officials in the Isle of Man and had obtained a certified copy of the uh, records of the company. And it showed that Mr. C, our debtor, was the uh, incorporator, the president, the secretary, and the treasurer of that company. So uh, when our debtor uh, testified that uh, in the federal court on direct examination, uh, the um, response to the questions were, well, uh, again, he told a story about, well, the plane belonged to the, these guys in uh, the Isle of Man, and he was their uh, employee and so forth, and uh, that it was the company's car. He had no connection with that. So uh, I was called to testify next, so I had the deal package from the dealer showing the car was, in fact, uh, his car, he had traded in his other car for it, and he was making the payments on it, even though it was in the name of this corporation. And then I uh, had the corporate documents with me, so I read those into the record uh, from the Isle of Man, certified, and uh, showed that he was the only officer of the company. And the judge said, well, thank you very much, Mr. Dickerson. Uh, you may step down. Uh, Mr. C., would you and your counsel please rise? And so they looked at each other, and the, he and his attorney stood up, and he said, the judge told him, he said, Mr. C., uh, you have 10 days to make this debt go away. And if you don't, I will deal with you personally. Anybody have any questions? And nobody had any questions, and we got certified funds in less than a week for our client, and the bankruptcy was discharged. And, and you know what, Joe? That is why. That, that is just a classic great story of the investigation that you and your team do on a case to be able to find out and continue to follow up on assets that are available and also in covering, at times, fraud. And that's why our firm uh, enjoys so much, working so much with your team because it makes our job a lot easier when we get into court. Well, yeah, and it was, uh, it was kind of funny because uh, I knew the former bankruptcy trustee, and I had called down to his office uh, to uh, get a referral uh, for an attorney, and the lady that answered phone told me that uh, uh, he was no longer the trustee because the new president had not reappointed him. And uh, so I found out where he was and called him and asked him if he could uh, represent my client in this case. And he said, well, he could represent the client, but he couldn't appear in court for a year since he had been the bankruptcy trustee, but his partners could. So we had a pretty good team of attorneys that uh, 
really we weren't too concerned about them uh, not doing a first-class job for us. It certainly worked out that way. You know, one of the points you made, Joe, and, and um, you talked about um, when the judge in your case there said, if you don't pay within 10 days, you know, it's going to be a problem and I am going to take care of it. Uh, I had a situation okay, Al, years ago, and I know we're going to go to a break. Yeah, let's go to a break and we can, you can tell me about that when we come back. Be back in a couple of minutes. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Learn why 80% of civil money judgments are never enforced in the United States. Ensure that you have the best chance to actually recover your judgment and get the money the court awarded to you. Order a copy of Joe Dickerson's new book, Diagnostic and Prescriptive Judgment Enforcement. You can get your copy for just $24.95 with no shipping and handling costs. Call 303-974-5610 or order via email from Joe at FinancialForensicServices.com. That's 303-974-5610 or Joe at FinancialForensicServices.com. Did you know that 80% of civil judgments awarded to creditors are never collected? Be one of the 20% that successfully collects. Joe Dickerson is the nation's leading financial forensic expert. Contact Joe at 303-974-5610 or by email to joe at financialforensicservices.com for a free consultation about your judgment enforcement needs. That's 303-974-5610 or joe at financialforensicservices.com for your free judgment enforcement initial consultation with Joe Dickerson. Contact him today. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to the Judgment Enforcement Hour. To reach host Joe Dickerson or his guest this week, call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now, back to the show. All right. Well, now we're back from the break. Uh, I want to tell the um, listeners about a little story. We talked about seeing things that are unusual or out of the ordinary, Al. And we had subpoenaed this particular debtor's uh, credits and debits uh, from the bank to find out where his money was being spent and where his money was coming from. And as we were doing our analysis of uh, the credits uh, and the debits, I noticed a check that was recurring uh, month after month that was usually a little over or a little under $13. And that check was made out uh, to the uh, an out-of-state power company uh, for what appeared to be a light bill. And if you'll think with me about that, I have never in my adult life since I've been paying the bills ever had an occasion where I had a light bill that was only this particular one that I was looking at was $13.54. And I just could not imagine uh, what kind of uh, utility system the debtor must have when he only had a $13.54 light bill. Uh, Because we're kind of past coal oil lamps and uh, fireplaces for uh, heating and so forth. Uh, So I had to dig into that a little deeper and uh, so I contacted the uh, post office uh, in the rural count uh, where this power company's office was located, their branch office, and uh, asked them uh, if they had a uh, rural route person that, uh, or a local uh, delivery person that could tell me where this particular debtor's home was. And... Uh, they said, well, it's in rural route 2, box 54. And I said, well, 
that doesn't tell me anything. Uh, can I talk to the delivery person to find out exactly where this property is? I need an address, not a route number and a box number. So he said, yeah, he'll be in tomorrow morning. So I called. Make a long story short, I got the uh, actual information on uh, the rural road and the crossroad where this property was located, uh, looked it up, and it was a section of land that uh, we determined had been purchased uh, from the uh, homeowner uh, or from my debtor's father right after World War II. And uh, the father had passed away, and our debtor was the only heir and was now the owner of this 640-acre property. So I did some uh, further checking and found out that there were some uh, cattle on the property. So I called a brand inspector who knows everything in these rural communities, and he said, oh, yeah, he says uh, the kid that uh, inherited that property lives over in uh, Denver, and uh, he runs a herd of uh, black angus cattle he's got a cow and calf operation and i said well how many head does he run he said about a uh, hundred to 125 each year i said well that's nice he said he's also got some uh, oil and gas wells out there on that property he said i don't know how many of them there are and what the production is but uh, i said well that's nice so i uh, did a little homework called the uh, uh, sale barn over there to find out uh, a little bit more about uh, our debtor and they said oh yeah he brings in these cattle and uh, you know got an idea of, of how often they were they were selling and called the debtor and asked him I said you know uh, you have uh, forestalled on paying this judgment and I'm just calling to ask you if you would like to uh, sell real estate if you wanted to uh, sell your oil and gas royalty income, or if you wanted to sell cattle uh, to pay this judgment, uh, or if it would be more convenient for you if I did that for you. And he said, tell me exactly what that is with interest, and uh, I'll see if I can get it taken care of. So I gave him his sum plus interest and cost and within 10 days, we had certified funds for the full amount, and he got to keep his ranch, his cattle, and his oil and gas income. And come to find out uh, that the $13.54 was for the single light bulb that was hanging in the barn that his hired man could uh, have light to feed early in the morning or late at night on this rural ranch. So that little... Uh, light bulb led us to the uh, 100% recovery uh, on our judgment. Uh, that that is just a a great story, and it and again, it just shows every little thing, a piece of information that you could pick up, could be the piece of information that you need to get your judgment paid, and and, and that's just a a great example of it. So. Um, you know, nothing's too small to be important. That that's right, and you were the I, shining light in that case, evidently. Well, yeah, I have attorneys all the time tell me uh, when you're getting all these checks, don't bother me with anything uh, less than a thousand dollars because we just don't have time to look at these little nickel and dime checks. Well, uh, if it's my client and my case, and we've brought the attorney in, we do it the way we want to. And we leave uh, no stone unturned if we possibly can. Uh, it doesn't cost a whole lot to spend a few hours going through these uh, instruments to see if there's a clue in there that can get you where you're going. And, you know, Joe, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to seize on that comment that you just made because the story that I want to tell now and ties a little bit back to what the judge said in your previous case but I had a case which, boy, you thought it was out of, of the movies. Um, there was an individual who owed our client not that much money, um, only about $60,000. And we were chasing her, and we were also chasing the co-debtor on the obligation. Um, but the co-debtor... 
was a really mysterious person. Um, but what happened was his ex-wife ended up filing a bankruptcy. And because of all the history in this case and the co-debtor uh, putting our clients on uh, goose chases all around the country and all these promises to get paid, we decided that we were going to heat things up a little bit in the bankruptcy case and put pressure on um, the bankrupt debtor um, to get this paid because we believe there was fraud involved uh, and a transfer of assets and fraudulent conveyances and all those good things. So this was another case where I conducted a 2004A examination of the debtor. And during that examination, as I was going through her income and expenses, and again, it's all these little pieces of information, she didn't have any amounts put down for food. And that was what raised a red flag for me. So in the first case I talked about, you know, was the food budget was too high. In this case, there was no food budget. So during the 2004A examination, I said, well, how do you pay for your food? Well, she said, my mother lives with me. And she is the one who pays for the food. I said, how much? And whatever the number was. And I said, what other expenses does she pay? And she started checking off, you know, all these expenses. <laughs> so I said, okay, what's your mother's name? Okay, and she already told me that she lived at the same address. So what I did, because we had now an adversary proceeding pending against the debtor for these fraudulent conveyances, I filed a notice to take a deposition of the debtor's mother. And now I hope our audience doesn't think that I'm a bad person because the individual happened to be 84 years old and I was bringing her in for a deposition to find out what she was contributing. Well, set her for a deposition. She never appeared. Um, I then filed a motion to show cause why the debtor's mother should not be held in contempt for failing to appear at a deposition. And at that hearing in court, the debtor's mother didn't show up. The debtor's mother didn't have an attorney. The debtor, actually without her attorney, tried to defend her mother. And this gets really interesting. <laughs> and the judge says to the debtor, we're going to reschedule this hearing for tomorrow. Your mother needs to be here. The next day we get to court and the debtor is there with her attorney and a note from a doctor that says, whoever the mother is, appearing for her deposition in front of Mr. Hockheiser would not be good for her health and I cannot recommend it. And this was a handwritten note. It happened to be that the doctors whose name was on the note was a doctor in the same practice as the bankruptcy judge's husband. The bankruptcy judge says, now, I'm not going to decide if this note is written correctly or whatever, but I have a feeling that the doctor doesn't really understand what's going on here. I am ordering the debtor's mother to be in Mr. Hockheiser's office no later than 5 o'clock on Thursday, and we're on Tuesday, so it gave her two days to appear for her deposition. If she doesn't, I will send the U.S. Marshals out and hold her in the jail in the bottom of the bankruptcy court until she provides her testimony for Mr. Hockheiser. Well, on that Thursday, the debtor's mother never appeared. The debtor said, we're going to not only give Mr. Hockheiser's client, you know, a non-dischargeability, we are going to waive our discharge in this case. And as a result, she then stepped up to the table, 
entered into a settlement agreement. Now, she didn't have a lot of money because all the money was with her ex-husband and all those issues. But she paid back four years and finally paid the balance off on that. But that's a situation that I wanted to bring out that, again, looking at the little things, a question about the food budget opened everything up to the debtor's mother, and as a result, our client ended up getting paid in full. How long had the mother been dead? (laughs) You know, uh, I never went through the obituaries, but I know she was getting mail there because when the subpoena, back in the day, attorneys could deliver subpoenas. So we delivered the subpoena, and no one was there, and so I put it in the mailbox, and there was mail hanging out, and it did, you know, I know there was mail getting to the house. Now, I don't know if it was for the debtor or the debtor's mother, but um, either way, it worked out well for our client. Well, that's the objective, isn't it? Yep. All right. We've got about uh, three or four more minutes before time to go to break, Al. So um, if you've got... Well, me, uh, go ahead. Yeah, I, have a short, I have a short one here, just... Another interesting story, and again, this came up in a bankruptcy case, and our client was owed uh, $180,000, and it was on a student loan case. And the debtor filed a motion, uh, actually a complaint, to have her student loans wiped out uh, as a hardship discharge because she couldn't work as much many hours, uh, And she was a pharmacist, so she was making a ton of good money. And we're going through this whole case. There are about four lenders who uh, had student loans where they were owed money. Um, But our client had the best situation. So we get to the final pretrial, right before trial, and the judge says, are you sure you don't want to settle any of these cases, and there were reasonable settlement um, offers out on the table from from the creditors, and the debtor was adamant. No, I'm not settling any of these. I can't work, and she owed about a total of five hundred eighty thousand dollars in student loans between her and her husband. And the judge says, "Well, do." The creditor's attorneys have anything they want to add. And I turned to debtor's counsel and I said, you do want to remind your client that her husband's mother is is liable as a guarantor on that student loan. Next thing you know, the debtor who was present says, we will settle that case with Mr. Hockheiser's client. So... Just a little short story about using pressure of co-debtors, and that helps you get paid as well. Absolutely. Well, we're going to go to break now. We'll be back in about uh, two minutes and have a few more examples before we have to close out. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Did you know that 80% of civil judgments awarded to creditors are never collected? Be one of the 20% that successfully collects. Joe Dickerson is the nation's leading financial forensic expert. Contact Joe at 303-974-5610 or by email to joe at financialforensicservices.com for a free consultation about your judgment enforcement needs. That's 303-974-5610 or joe at financialforensicservices.com for your free judgment enforcement initial consultation with Joe Dickerson. Contact him today. Learn why 80% of civil money judgments are never enforced in the United States. Ensure that you have the best chance to actually recover your judgment and get the money the court awarded to you. Order a copy of Joe Dickerson's new book, Diagnostic and Prescriptive Judgment Enforcement. 
You can get your copy for just $24.95 with no shipping and handling costs. Call 303-974-5610 or order via email from Joe at FinancialForensicServices.com. That's 303-974-5610 or Joe at FinancialForensicServices.com. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are tuned in to the Judgment Enforcement Hour. To reach host Joe Dickerson or his guest this week, call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now, back to the show. All right, folks, welcome back. Uh, we're back from break, and uh, I do have uh, one little uh, case I would like to share with the audience. This is one uh, where we ended up not having to go to court uh, with this debtor because the attorney that I had been working with uh, on uh, matters similar to this, uh, he and I had worked with this particular debtor uh, three times in the past, and on each of those three occasions, we had been fortunate enough to get a 100% recovery. And when this new one came up, I told the attorney, I said, why don't we just take our friend uh, Frankie to breakfast at the country club and have a nice little Saturday morning brunch and chat about this case and see if we can keep it out of court. He says, I'm gay." So we made an appointment and met Frankie O at the uh, local country club that had a, a nice Saturday morning brunch. So we had our brunch, and uh, finally, as we were having coffee, Frankie says, well, now, I know you guys didn't call me just because you think I'm a good guy, so why are we here? I said, well, strange you should ask, Frankie. We have this little judgment, and I told him the amount of it, and I said, and as you can imagine, uh you are the subject of the judgment, and uh, Andy and I just wanted to chat with you and see if it was going to be necessary uh, for us to have to uh, spend our client's money and your time and money in court and then get the judgment so we can get our client's money. So uh, how would you like to handle this? So he asked a few questions about who the the uh, judgment creditor was and uh, what it was going to take to settle the thing. And uh, I told him, and it was a, it was a fairly decent six-figure deal. So he said, uh, well, we might be able to work something out. I said, well, tell me, you know, you're, you're a pretty sharp guy. You've obviously got a good education, good IQ. And uh, why do you do this stuff? Uh, you could be working just about anywhere you wanted to. He said, Joe, Joe, here, hand, hand me your yellow pad. Uh, here, I've got a pen. Let me just show you the, the economics of this. Obviously, you don't understand it. And I said, okay, I'm, I'm up for an education. So he drew a triangle and turned it upside down and drew a line fairly close to the top of the upside down triangle. And he said, this part at the top is represents the cases where I have uh, defrauded uh, the victim, and the victim never understands what happens. So since they still believe that it's just an investment that went bad, I get to keep all the money. And that's about 35% of the cases that I work on. So he drew a line across and put 35% there. And he said, the next one, uh, sometimes they think something's wrong, but they're not really sure. They don't know what to do about it. They really don't want to believe that there's something wrong. And they never even bother to hire an attorney. So I get to keep all that. And that's about 25% of my gross income. And then there's another group, and they know something's happened. They don't know exactly what it is, but they hire a lawyer. Uh, he chases me around. He sends me subpoenas. I never show up. Uh, they finally get tired of uh, playing the game, and they never get a judgment, and I could keep all their money, too, and that's another 20%. Then there's cases, as we get down here toward the bottom, that they hire an attorney. They're fortunate. They get a judgment. 
But after they get the judgment, the attorney can never find the money because I have uh, either invested it or moved it into other uh, entities, and they never find it, so I get to keep all that. And that's another 15%. And this 5% right down here at the tip of the triangle, this is what happens when they hire a couple of SOBs like the two of you. And when I see that happen, I just write them a check. And it cost me 5% of my gross income in checks that I have to write to settle the case and make it go away. And 5% is really not too bad of a cost of doing business. So now do you understand, Joe? I guarantee you there are not many businesses out here that have a 95% gross profit. So that's why I do it. And uh, he was very proud of himself. And uh, he wrote us a check. We got our 100% and went on down the road. So sometimes there is no remorse. It's just a matter of business. Oh. That's my story. Al, I'll let you have the next five minutes before we have to break. And, and, and that's a great story because it actually reminds me a lot of what I am seeing in some bankruptcy chapter 11s around the comp- country because there is a lot of individuals who unfortunately are going through the same thing. And when you don't have counsel or companies like yours who are willing to do that type of investigation and bring the actions or, you know, for half those investors there that he has, boy, if one of them would have thrown him into an involuntary uh, bankruptcy, his life and his whole plan would be shot because now people would actually be looking at it. but. Um, that's why we find this show hopefully helpful to our audience is, is to make them aware that, yes, there are things that you need to do. And, you know, you talk about, I hate to use the word, fraud uh, with the nice gentleman who paid you all that money in that case. But I have a that's what similar case um, down in Texas where our client lent money to a restaurant and the restaurant defaulted on the payments but what was interesting is when our client wired the money to a bank account there was a freeze on the funds by the bank so the money that the debtor was supposed to get is sitting in a bank account now the debtor happens to be in texas So when they learned of this freeze, our client started to get phone calls from an individual. And the individual actually had an attorney, which was very shocking. And they demanded that we release the funds because she signed these documents. But she signed these documents with our client without authority. And the name of the company was not who she was an officer of. She was the officer of the company that was trying to buy the existing restaurant. So I write a letter to the attorney, and I said, you're not getting that money. Our client is going to take the necessary steps to have that money unfrozen at the bank and get it returned because... You know, those are the proceeds from the deal, which never ended up going through. Well, that attorney went silent. He didn't have a clue. I think he was the one who was putting together the closing documents because he was a real estate attorney and didn't understand the level of fraud going on. So, got about two minutes blue, Thank you. Out of the blue, I get a call from the attorney from the regular restaurant, the people who were defrauded by this lady asking me whether we could provide some help. And he said, I will get you those funds unfrozen as long as you can show me that it's not my client's signature on the documents, which we did. So long story short, our client ended up getting its money back. The individuals who were defrauded 
are going after the person that defrauded them, and they're going to be in a battle forever. And I think we have an attorney who tried to close the whole deal in the beginning who has some real issues that he's going to have to look at from an ethical standpoint. So, again, you know, what's going on out there? There are ways to get paid, but you never know who the most likely source is who can help you out. And so well, we're equal week. opportunity. We're equal Absolutely. opportunity. We'll take our money from any of them. The debtor, the debtor's employee, or whomever is responsible. Al, thank you so much for another great show. I always appreciate your being with us. And before we close, I have an announcement that I need to make to our listeners out there. Um, the Judgment Enforcement Hour has completed its pilot program with Voice of America. So this will be our last program. Uh, we are hoping that uh, sometime over the uh, next few months, we can put together a plan and uh, rejoin Voice of America. They've been wonderful to work with. We've enjoyed our relationship with them, and we're mutually now working on trying to find a way uh, to move forward with this program. But for the time being, it's time for us to sign off and say, Remember, it's not what you win, it's what you recover that matters. If we can ever be of service to you folks out there, please give Financial Forensic Services a call at 303-974-5610. And we still have a few copies of our book, Diagnostic and Prescriptive Judgment Enforcement. You can get your your copy um, without shipping and handling charges by, again, calling our financial forensic office at 303-974-5610. Mr. and Ms. America, it's been great. Best of luck to all of you out there. Call us if we can ever help, and good night. Thank you for tuning in to the Judgment Enforcement Hour. Be sure to join Joe Dickerson and another guest next Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time and 4 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll bring you more case studies and advice next week.